Frank leans in. As soon as I did a lick like that, he said, you hear that thing talking to you? I mean, I was hooked, man. I, I, I was like, you know, it was like a big hook in my mouth. I mean, I was being like plucked out of the water. It was like, yeah, I do. And I don't know what that is, but I got to have it. Greetings and welcome to all my picky fingered brothers and sisters out there. This is the Picky Fingers podcast the show for banjo players and banjo enthusiasts. I am your host, Keith Billick, and today's a really cool show. I'll talk more about it in just a second. But before I do, I do need to recognize the supporters of today's show. First supporter is a gentleman named Jake Lowe. He's a performer and a teacher of banjo down in North Carolina. So if any of you are in that area and are in need of some lessons, look up Jake. He listens to this podcast, so you know he's pretty cool, right? Uh, The other supporter of today's show is Mike Muller. He lives out in the Bay Area. He's a relatively new banjo player, but he's picking up a lot of tips from the show, which I'm always thrilled to hear that people get useful information out of it. I mean, I know I I like what I'm hearing, but uh, it's nice to hear that some of you do too. Mike, he... I, I mentioned he's in the Bay Area. I've been seeing some photos recently of the smoke from the campfire. Mike, I hope you and your friends and your family, I hope you're all safe and be careful out there. That stuff is nuts. I'm kind of lucky to be in Michigan where we don't have any earthquakes or wildfires or anything to to worry about. So yeah, I'm lucky in that way. Take care, Mike. But uh, Mike and Jake, I really appreciate both of you guys supporting the show I couldn't do it without you, and that's real important to me. For anyone else out there looking to support the podcast, I really encourage you to go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. That's a way to make a donation to the show if you if you do enjoy what you're hearing. This isn't my job. I do it on my spare time and at my own expense. So it really does help offset the cost that I incur from that and help pay me maybe a a few cents an hour for the time that I spend on it. It is pretty, pretty hard work. It's very rewarding and I love doing it, but your donations do help a lot in that way. So patreon.com slash banjo podcast is the way to do that. Other than that, the best ways to support are the word of mouth type of ways, which these days means spread links on social media, tell your friends, tell other banjo players that you might know all that kind of those kind of methods really help a lot. And I do appreciate everyone who's doing that. Uh, Feel free to email me if you have any comments or suggestions about the show. I love hearing from you and I do get a fair number of emails from you and I do try to respond to each and every one. I love hearing your suggestions and I, I am trying to incorporate them in as many ways as possible. The email address for the show is pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. So email me anytime and I will... Hope to hear from you that way. Speaking of emailing the show, one of the most common emails that I get from listeners is in the form of suggestions about future guests for the show. And that's great. It often makes me, it it might be players that I don't know too much about, or maybe players that I do know about, but never really considered. So I, I love getting all of those and putting all those people back on my radar But if I had to choose the most commonly suggested guest, it might be Mike Munford. So I'm really excited that I get to put out this show today with Mike Munford as the guest. And I have to say, although every single guest that I've had 
has been super great and generous with their time and has given great tips and advice and told great stories, this might be the best one. And I say that because, for one thing, Mike Monfort is kind of one of these universally respected guys. A lot of people have their opinions about they like the progressive players or they only like the real traditional guys. And Mike Munford seems to be one of these guys who, no matter what your taste in banjo music is, chances are you dig the heck out of Mike Munford. He's a great player. He was recognized in 2013 as the IBMA Banjo Player of the Year. So he has gotten some recognition for that, but um, he's definitely a fan favorite. He's one of my favorites, and he's one of your favorites too because I've I've read all those emails. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with Mike's playing or his uh, his work, he's the banjo player for Frank Sullivan and Dirty Kitchen, and they're a nationally touring group. So if you if you look up those guys, you can um, try to make a make a point to go see them. Mike is also a very in demand banjo setup guy. And we talk a bit about that on the show. So you'll hear him uh, discuss his setup techniques a bit. He's an authority on pre-war Gibson instruments. You'll hear him talk about that too. And probably the best part about this show is he does tons of demonstrating his favorite licks from J.D. Crow and really talking about that style and why it influenced him so much. So I'm really geeked to have you hear it. This was one of my favorite ones to listen back to. I thought he did a great job, and I know you're going to like it too, especially because I get so many of those emails saying you should get Mike Munford on the show. Well, here he is, the banjo player for Frank Sullivan and Dirty Kitchen, Mike Munford. Enjoy. Well, I grew up in Baltimore. I didn't really hear this music much as a, as a kid, other than what most people heard maybe on TV once in a while, Beverly Hillbillies. Beverly I heard that theme. I remember liking it. I, not enough to necessarily run right out and get a banjo, but I remember just hearing that and liking it. Mm-hmm. And then later on, a neighborhood friend of mine when I was about 15, he started taking up the banjo uh, and wanted me to come over to his house and see this banjo. I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. And nobody else in our neighborhood was really doing anything like that. And he started playing a little bit. He'd been playing maybe less than a year, and I didn't even know that. And uh, he started playing a little bit of Cripple Creek, and I didn't know what that song was. But then he played Foggy Mountain Breakdown, and I said, I've definitely heard that. What is that? Mm-hmm. He said, told me all about it. It's bluegrass music, Earl Scruggs, the guy who plays, you know, played the theme of uh, Beverly Hillbillies. I said, yeah, I've heard that stuff. And I've definitely heard Foggy Mountain Breakdown maybe at Oriole Games. Or Bonnie uh, and Clyde, something well, like that. Well, I hadn't seen the movie yet. Okay. Uh, that, that movie came out when I was 10 Got it. or 9, and so I wasn't able to go to a, a, see a movie like that. So anyway, no, I, hadn't, I didn't put together the Bonnie and Clyde thing at all, but probably had heard it on the radio again without knowing there, what yeah. it was. But, and then he played a track of all things, and it wasn't a flattened Scruggs cut. It was Earl Scruggs Live at Kansas State. That's the yeah. album he had, Earl Scruggs Review. And uh, and he put that cut on a Foggy Mountain Breakdown. I said, yeah, I've heard that. God, I love that. You've got to show me how to do this. I mean, it really got me right between the ears. So you weren't playing any instruments up till nothing. then? Okay. Absolutely nothing. I, and how old did you say you were? 15. Okay. I'd heard some things I liked. My folks were, they liked classical music. They didn't play or participate in that, but they loved going to concerts. And I was exposed to classical music around the house. 
older brother. It had pop and rock music around the house. So I was hearing things and I would hear little snippets of things that I liked. But again, not enough to really go after it. And as far as I knew in my neighborhood, just a regular suburban Baltimore neighborhood, we didn't really have music in the neighborhood. Nobody else was other than this kid who, <laughs> a friend of mine up the street, who started playing banjo, but there was no music around. I didn't see anybody playing piano or violin, or if anybody had a piano, it was for decoration in the house. Yeah. yeah but there, were, there was nobody strumming a guitar, nobody playing a horn or anything like that. So I didn't have direct contact with live music until I saw this guy playing the banjo. And you knew that that was something that it really did had to do. strike me. And I, I, reading stories about other people that seem to be hit a similar way, and maybe in other genres too, where you just, you know it when you hear it, you just say, like Dora Lawson said, I, I saw a quote that he had of, of something, it's not just something you want to do, it's something you have to do. Mm-hmm. It, it hits you that deeply. And that's the way I felt when I heard him play Foggy Mountain, my friend, I said, you have to show me how to do that. And I was at that age where you just go from one thing to another. You're into basketball, riding bikes, whatever you're into. Yeah. I thought, well, I'll do this for a month. And, and then and on here to the we next are, thing. however many years later. <laughs> that's and, and 45 years ago. It. Yeah, that's cool. But it, but it really was as, as simple as that. It just hit me. And then one thing led to another, took lessons from him. And he was no showing you primarily the, the scrug stuff is no, what you went to? No, In fact, I asked him, I said, can you show me how to do this? And no, you're nowhere near ready for that. We'll start with the Pete Seeger book. And I'm telling you, I, I know it sounds awful to say, blasphemous almost, but it's, I didn't know who any of these people were. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard the name Pete Seeger. I'd never heard of Bill Monroe, Jimmy Martin. Right. These were not household names. I in, wouldn't have either area. at that age. It didn't come up and it just, I wasn't exposed to any of this. So every name Everything about it was new, yeah. other than all I knew was it was some form of country music and it had a banjo, but I didn't know anything about tenor banjos, five-string, nothing at all. It came in completely cold. So what were the next influences that you discovered? Who were the players that you well, were really Well, it was Earl Scruggs with? immediately. Yeah. So really going after that, after a few months of the Seeger book, eventually got the Scruggs book and started working on that. Because I remember the Seeger book was more, uh, you know, kind of strumming, mm-hmm. like a one without picks. You know, that kind More of thing. More as a means to accompany a song. Yeah, as which is to a fine. It was like a basic strum and all that. And it, but it sounded like, at least it sounded like a banjo, and I was happy with that. But when it finally was able to get picks on mm-hmm. and start playing a, a basic rhythm, and then this roll, yeah. the alternating thumb or square roll, they call that. Yep. I thought, golly, that's, that sounds like what I'm hearing on a record, start you know? Start being musical real quick. Yeah, but really trying to get that. But I was I had terrible technique. Uh, the guy who was showing me at first, he sort of eventually quit. And I was sort of on my own, and I didn't have any pictures, and I wasn't driving yet, so I wasn't like I could just go. I didn't know anything about festivals, didn't know where to go. So I just I had the worst possible right-hand technique. I had my palm oh, yeah. on the head, okay. my little finger on the bridge, fingers flying everywhere, really <laughs> sloppy. I did that for about a year and a half. Doing everything you could to just smush just your to be, tone into just oblivion. Trying to, <laughs> yeah, knowing nothing about tone, but yeah. just trying to play and get my fingers in the right place. It was on a harmony banjo. Had you know that was, And it was about a year later when I finally, uh, no, maybe six months later, Lester Flat came to town. Oh, wow. And I didn't know who Kenny Ingram was, but as it turned out, it was Kenny Ingram playing banjo. He was a fantastic banjo player. And that was the first time I actually saw somebody play. Wow. 
and especially somebody of his somebody caliber. who's a professional banjo yeah. player. You know, here I'm trying to figure this stuff out and looking at little black and white pictures in a book, but you know, here finally is somebody in the flesh playing. It must like, have been really exciting. It was, but I couldn't pick up anything. It's not like mm -hmm. I could really learn a lot from that, but at least I had some idea of a visual on it. And then one thing led to another. An article came out in the Baltimore Sun newspaper article, and it meant about Bluegrass, and it mentioned Bluegrass Unlimited magazine. Mm -hmm. Never heard of that. Sent it, called Burke, Virginia, got information, got Bluegrass Unlimited magazine, it comes through the mail slot, and it was like, good Lord, this is, <laughs> you know, from outer space, practically. So there was a seldom scene on the cover, and I'm devouring all that. I'm listening to radio shows in D.C. WAMU had started up a few years before, so I was able to hear major contribution from WAMU at 88.5 FM in D.C. had bluegrass, you know, several hours a week. Yeah. So I was starting to get exposed to hearing bands like the seldom scene, Jimmy Martin, Flatten Scruggs, all that so reading Bluegrass Unlimited, and it mentions a festival, Gettysburg. It's like, well, I know where that is. Mm -hmm. Other festivals, they were in, you know, out-of-the-way places, never heard of it. But, okay, Gettysburg Bluegrass Festival. By then, I'd heard of J.D. Crow, had a had the, uh, oh, gosh, which one was that? The Bluegrass Holiday album. Okay. Loved that album, Train 45. That's a tune that really got me. Yeah. And so I see it's a little black and white picture of J.D. Crow. That's the only picture I'd seen of J.D. Crow. Well, and it looks like, yeah. Yeah, so, so I remember going to the Gettysburg Festival. I wanted to see J.D. Crow, and, you know, I get my ticket, and I park my car, and I just turned 16. I'd only been driving a month, so, you know, just getting up there and making sure I don't get in an accident or Whole anything. Whole new world for you. Whole yeah. new world. Didn't go with anybody. Didn't know anybody there. It was like visiting another planet. Right. You know, just nothing similar to the life I had known before that. So, you know, I'm just, I get right in front of the stage, and they announce J.D. Crow in the New South, and this guy comes out with long red hair. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, man, where's that guy who was in that picture? That doesn't look like the guy that was in that little black and white picture right. on the bluegrass. I, this is what I knew about the music, right? You know, absolutely nothing. I, I remember they came out on stage, and... And I thought, wow, I guess they have some other guy filling in for him. I guess, I guess he's not here. But it was him. It was him. That's it, funny. He had this longish red hair that didn't look at all like that picture. And I didn't know till three songs in when, they, when Tony Rice introduced him. Okay. And, uh, you know, things like that you just never forget. And, was uh, that the famous, the, like the Rounder 44 no, band? No, this is, is that a year before. This is in August 17th, 1974. And I remember the time, date, and temperature because that— that festival made a huge impress, impression on me. First festival, first time exposed to hearing parking lot picking and just the whole vibe of a really good bluegrass festival. And I was really drawn to that band mm -hmm. and the seldom scene. I really enjoyed them. Jimmy Martin, Newgrass Revival was there. I, I, didn't, I didn't know anything about these other bands, really. But I was really looking for JD, and that was like my second exposure to watching a really great banjo player in person. And I remember that had a profound effect but i don't i had been playing less than a year at that point yeah. so it wasn't like i was picking up subtle details i just was just knew drawn that you liked to it. the sound and first time being exposed to great singing like that do you know I what it know. is looking i know you maybe weren't aware of it at the time but looking back what do you think it was about his playing that caught Timing you or and ben phrasing. eldridge's playing well ben eldridge had all the really beautiful stuff on rider you know a lot of uh bluesy chromatics which was sort of hitting then i didn't know any of that then but you know the kind of things that ben was playing the you know those kind of lines that you would hear yeah. on on his improv on rider 
and their material was so beautiful. But the thing I was hearing in JD, and I was still struggling learning how to play Scrug style, but what what really drew me to Crow was what I found out later. It was that his timing, his, his tone, of course, is magnificent, but the timing and phrasing. <laughs> Yeah, just just the way he would play tags with such authority and precision and accent, mm-hmm. you know, it it such dynamics even within his roles and phrasing. It's not just like a yeah da 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 da. It's it's got it push and pull, yep. ebb and flow. Uh, There's a sophistication by the way. We... Yeah, but yeah, such so, yeah, and 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 uh, what else to say about it? It's like everything you need and nothing that you don't need. Mm-hmm. And what I learned later on was the way he would play and leave certain notes out that just added to that sort of sense of syncopation and space. Uh, little hesitations and yeah. things in the role. Things that would come up, for example, in uh, Old Home Place after the, the end of the break. That little, just that little hesitation right there that sounded different than than Earl, yeah. And it wasn't that it was a better than or anything like that, but it was different. It's a little funkier, a little funkier, bluesier, as -hmm. it turns out, on certain things. Other things that drew me to his playing, particularly on the Tony Rice guitar album, which came out about a year after I first saw these Mm -hmm. guys in '74, maybe early '75 or late '74. That album came out. And that album, this is Tony's first guitar album. This was recorded in Lexington, Kentucky with the New South at that time. Mm -hmm. And so that's J.D. and then uh, Tony's brother Larry on mandolin, Bobby Sloan on the bass. Primarily guitar album, but it had standards. You had Doing My Time, Salt Creek, John Hardy, Nine Pound Hammer, Freeborn Man, Reuben. Tunes that you would hear at any jam session. Standard tunes with great, of course, great guitar playing and mandolin, but the banjo is particularly good on this album. Yeah. And I remember being really drawn to that, his tone, phrasing, particular breaks, backup. I learned all about backup from that album, how to play a slow tune. They did Faded Love and Crow played a beautiful break on Faded Love. I really ate that album up, studied it a lot. Guitar playing, too, that came along later, got way into that as well. But the banjo playing in particular... It was really strong, a lot of subtleties, still studying that thing. I'll, I'll go back and listen to a track on it, and I'll pick up, like, little accents and things he's doing on there. Yeah. It's a very it's very rich. Yeah, it's, um, it's deep. Yes, it's, it is deep. And, and the more you get into it, the more you find and discover new mm-hmm. things. But there's, like, a, this loping kind of rhythm that I hear with that that era of the New South, uh, and you hear it on live tapes as well. Sometimes it doesn't even come across on albums as much. But instead of like a really sort of like a constant... Or a... You know, which is perfectly fine. There are certain tunes. There's this other subtle swirling kind of a rhythmic thing that goes on with that band. Thank you. 
don't yeah, know how I, to describe it sometimes, but it's a different kind of a feel that, of course, tied in with the guitar very strongly and a specific mandolin yeah, chop. Yeah, it had to do with Tony's rhythm. Tony's rhythm was a big part of that. It's like it gets almost gets uh, lags in rhythm, but yeah. then catches back up all of a yeah. sudden, and, and it really can s- yeah. smack you across the face it when that It does. Happens. There's a live tape uh, from the Holiday, and these guys played the Holiday in four or five nights a week back in the 70s, early 70s, and a buddy of mine in Baltimore who showed me a lot about Gibson banjos. He was a friend of JD's, a guy named Frank Sheff, very knowledgeable banjo uh, aficionado. And uh, he had a lot of these live tapes from that era and, and got you know, me exposed to that. And I remember one cut in particular of Somehow Tonight. I'm not going to retune it. It was probably up in B flat or B maybe, but just playing it in G. But I just remember the, the way the banjos surged and pulled on this break. really cool and that's without having a rhythm section around it but there's just like this yeah as you said it kind of pushes and lags back pushes again i mean i'm doing my best to try to imitate it but uh it's a really special sound that i find extremely intriguing and banjo banjo playing bluegrass particularly can become fairly cliche if you're not careful yeah and just moving those little cliche licks into unexpected places yeah. can totally transform how yeah. the Yeah, and there was one in particular in works. that song that really got me, and it took me forever to figure it out, and, you know, I finally got a cassette recorder that could slow down to half speed. Uh-huh. That thing was like solid gold to me. But it was, yeah, pull-offs and hammers and things like that. Right after the D... Just a place like that that you really wouldn't hear Scruggs play quite like that. It was just a different timing there, or even just at the end of a reverse roll thing, like a... That kind of thing. I I couldn't figure that out at all. It's like, what is he doing there? On Bugle Call Reg... Yeah, that kind of thing. That that uh, I have to. Just mm-hmm. where that that little pull was placed, I just remember just being driven crazy by that. I just love that timing, yeah. phrasing, and where he placed things like that. He's he's loaded with that. You know? Yeah, he really is. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm really hesitating to make you talk about anything other than J.D. Crow's playing because I'm I'm loving hearing you dissect it. Because oh my gosh, I get now, into that now all I day. need to go back and and listen for all these things that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But how is your own playing progressing? Because because at this point you have a pretty well-rounded style in terms of you do tons of melodics, you do yeah. tons of Crow-esque influence. Yeah. Um, it's a combination material. of those two, really. Um, and, well, I'll tell you the thing that really got me into the blues melodic thing was mm-hmm. hearing Bobby Thompson on a, a Dueling Banjos album. This is when Dueling Banjos was still raging. It was an Arthur Smith Bob, uh, album. And 
it had Bobby Thompson on a couple of cuts on there. And I'd only started hearing things. Banjo Newsletter was starting to talk about blues chromatics, but I didn't really know what they were referencing and didn't really have much in the way of that. I didn't have the Newgrass Revival album yet, so I didn't hear Courtney yet uh, doing you know all the improv on Lonesome Fiddle Blues. But there was a break that Bobby did on dueling banjos. I remember this break because it's, it's the one that got me started wanting to play that style. Okay. And it's done with basically this guy, Arthur Smith, who wrote the song with Don Reno. He was playing it on tenor banjo, and then he has Bobby Thompson playing the five-string break. And Thompson's break started out really straight. Really straight. Okay, I'm going to play that cleaner because to, to do it justice because this is what really got me. And actually, it was a lot slower than that. It was uh, now I didn't get yeah. all of that right away. That's for sure. But hearing this the first time. You knew that there was something different. About I it. loved that, and I had no <laughs> idea where it was. I didn't. There wasn't any book out yet. Trishka's book on melodic banjo was not out yet, mm-hmm. so there was no. I was like, "What is this? What? Where? Where are these notes?" It seems you know very accessible and today, but it sure wasn't in '75 for yeah. me. So you know, finally. Articles were coming out in Banjo Newsletter referencing things like that, and you're starting to hear the, mm-hmm. you know, that that kind of thing. Ben Eldridge was playing that on a song called Appalachian Train or Appalachian Rain on okay. the on one of their seldom seen albums. So it was starting to show up more and more, and starting to hear that, and that's what really turned me on to that style. Sorry to Bobby to mess up that that break on you the first time. <laughs> I haven't played tried to play that break in a while, but uh, I, you know that was a that was a huge turning point for me okay. because it was almost like a dual personality kind of a thing. It's like I really loved that, but it was such a departure from the Crow Scruggs. Mm-hmm. So one minute I'm working on Flint Hill Special and really trying to get that. You know I really want that, mm-hmm. but I'm also wanting to get. You know, and it's like they couldn't be more completely different. Well, I'll say you have achieved bridging some sort of gap because that's something about your melodic playing. And I think this is true of a lot of Alan Mundy's recordings yes. where you maintain a bluegrass drive, even yeah. though you're playing these non bluegrass role pattern oriented. Right. Things. Do you have any advice for maintaining that? Type yeah, of... and what a great, you just cited Alan and that uh, Hot Burrito breakdown from mm-hmm. the Country Gazette album was a perfect example of that because he, you know, starts off very Scruggsy. All that, right? And it goes into the C and the B flat and the A, D. And he has a great second break. Starts out again very Scruggsy. Something like that. Then he goes... Damn, that lick. <laughs> when I heard that, I was like, 
Oh my god! And it, it had every bit of the same drive. It was all you know, up tempo, just coming out of us. You know, all this up the neck classic Scruggs thing with Alan's twist on, and then that. Didn't sacrifice a thing. It right. was driving, totally fit what was going on. And that was a real ear turner for me. Yeah. Because I was already hearing people say, yeah, you know, melodics just, you know, kind of doesn't have drive or, you know, kind of falls apart. And it can if you're not careful. And that was sort of the bad rap with it. It went two ways. Some, in some ways, it got really excessive with people just throwing in blues melodic on, yeah. you know, everything. Flat and Scruggs tunes. Blues melodics, eh, it doesn't sound so great sometimes. Or somebody playing sort of like kind of a lilting hornpipe feel or a lick where it, the song was really driving and then suddenly it's kind it of this off. lilting thing yeah. and it falls off. And and certainly Courtney Johnson, plenty of drive in his melodics. Mm-hmm. Ben Eldridge, no problem. You know, Alan Mundy really proved that point too. So that there, it's not like there weren't examples of that. Carl Jackson played an amazing version of Orange Blossom Special solo banjo on the Bean Blossom album. I remember hearing that and going, oh, my gosh. Certainly no problem of what a guy al- what playing by himself. What album is that? I'm, I'm familiar with that Yeah, one. the Bean Blossom, the original Bean Blossom album, Bill Monroe's Bean Blossom. It was a two-album set recorded in 73. A and compilation of the festival? Yeah, of the of the festival. Okay, had, I've, course, I've seen that. Monroe, yeah. Jimmy Martin, um, I think Lester Flatt was on that, too. And then there's this one cut of Carl Jackson playing Orange Blossom by himself and tons of drive, big tempo, great ideas, and just incredible drive. I thought, well, certainly it's not lacking for drive. So there were already people who were certainly capable of this before I ever tried it. Do you think that's just a matter of being aware? Yes, it's it's a certain awareness. And I think that the other thing that can really help with that, uh, I was very lucky around Baltimore to to play with wonderful fiddlers in Baltimore, John Glick in particular, Warren Blair, two fantastic fiddlers, really tied into the Baltimore scene and got to hear them a lot, eventually got to play gigs with these guys, really great fiddlers, Uh, Warren had a lot of Kenny Baker material and could play that stuff great. And among many other things, John had that to some extent, but and more importantly, a really ferociously intense, bluesy, rhythmic feel in his playing. Tons of drive. And I'm thinking, okay, if you're playing a melodic phrase and you're hearing a fiddle play a melodic phrase with drive, why can't that be done on the banjo if you play it with the same attitude? Mm -hmm. So if you're playing just a G scale and just go... Well, you can certainly play it like that. Or. You know, put more of a fiddle feel in it. You can almost yada, hear, yada, the, yada, you hear the bow. bow strokes, yeah. yeah, even just doing a G scale. Put a little more. Of a hoedown, yada da da yada da right. yada, just thinking like a fiddle, being around fiddlers and hearing the way they do things like that. You're, you're learning Blackberry Blossom as a banjo player. You'll tend to go. Oh, that's how I played it too. It's very even, very, very even, very and going vanilla, for that. Yeah. Listen to a fiddler. Yeah, yeah.
like hearing John, uh, this guy, John Glick, play that, I could just think of phrases he would do where he would just break it up and leave a note out. It'd be yabba da ba da ba da da ba da da You know, like just things like that, just, you know, that made me think, okay, there's a way to really bring more of a fiddle drive yeah, to an the attitude. melodic thing and yeah. attitude. And strangely enough, even the crow thing, which seems very different, you can bring that attitude to your melodics, even though it's a different technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to play, you know, You Don't Know My Mind with that kind of... That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no reason why a melod. Now, I wouldn't choose to play melodics on "You Don't Know My Mind," but if I was going to play a tune that had that kind of feel, I could probably get some of it in there. Yeah. Something like that, where you're yeah. punchy. You're still playing that kind of a melodic phrase, but with you know pull-offs, mm-hmm. and then blending it in with conventional Scruggs Crow type phrasing. Repeating myself there, but but you get sort of the idea. Yeah, yeah. That I makes love a lot of those sense. kind of quotes, and when I hear I hear those kind of ideas from fiddlers and mandolin players, it's like, man, I want to get that. Yeah, I want some of those kind of phrases and accents mixed in with rolling bluegrass banjo technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear a lot of that. Obviously, in your were you writing tunes back then? No, not okay. at all. A lot of them that I've, your original tunes, you played one last night at the concert. I know you yeah. have another one. What is it called? Line Drive. Yeah. That use a lot of that stuff, but they're actually borderline more progressive in terms of arrangement right. uh, techniques. Where does that come from? It just, yeah. Um, well, again, a blend of that. Yeah. Well, for example, like Line Drive, that really came to me you know, just off the phrasing of a Scruggs lick. And that that particular phrase is. Let's see. Sorry, let me check my tuning here quickly. Take your time. Got a little sharp on you here. Yeah, that that little phrase right there. So, you know, it's not very Scruggsy, but it's starting with that sort of two, three hammer or slide. melodic there and then going to a seven chord you know those kind of more chromatic yeah a little more chromatic but you know we've heard those phrases before too but then the second part not too far you know not too far out it's still kind of rolling technique and pull-offs That's the basic framework of the tune, but you can see it has still pull-offs and 
rolls. Yeah. This is the only thing that might be a little different. I love that kind of tonality, that sort of Mixolydian type phrasing right. and rolling, or phrasing, but that, that mode, you know, tunes like June Apple, those kind of fiddle tunes, Monroe's fiddle tunes, you know, Old Ebenezer, Old Dangerfield, that have lots of that. Yeah. I just love those kind of, that tonality, those yeah, kind of that tunes. that space between a... Major and a minor, major and a, and a minor, and a, yeah. The yeah. bluesy, just and just and the accenting, the punches, you know, the fiddle type of yep, ba da da ba da ba da, you know, just like the kind of surge that, that fiddlers tend to put in yeah. there. And you can work into still getting sort of rolling and scruggs type of, you know, that's why line drive kind of came around like that. You know, and just finding a, fra a phrase like that that's a little different. It's even almost Monroe-esque a little bit. Yeah. Right? Right. That major third. And yeah, then, that, yeah, that, that... And you even stuck in a little snippet of single string in there too, right? Did I? Did I? Well, maybe like you maybe just yeah, a just a couple notes. Bit. Yeah, I will use single string a little bit. I've, I've never had the dexterity to really be able to do the long lines like you know Bela or Ryan and all the guys that are really nailing that style. It's an incredible style. It for me, I, I was I stuck to the to the uh, melodic style. I still wanted for my own taste mm -hmm. i still wanted to hear the open strings ringing more and that's not to denigrate the single string because it's an incredibly versatile style and I'm, that's not a knock on that at all and these guys are playing it wonderfully and there's no question that melodics has some uh i mean it'd be really tough to be able to really play flowing melodics in a flat yes. you know i mean you could really work it out but you'd be doing some really serious contortions of the left hand that might send you to a, you know, a <laughs> physical therapy for the rest of your life. Yeah. It, it can be done. Pat Cloud was really a guy who, you know, studied that and was doing some yep. amazing things with that. But I think for fiddle tunes and bluegrass, I still wanted to hear the open ringing strings. I still want to get that... It's that for me, it was able to. I was able to sort of integrate that with the Scruggs rolls a little bit easier, uh, yeah, and keep the tone relatively the same. Mm -hmm. So that it felt a little more natural to me. I agree that single string just is is tough to. It's really have it not tough. be an abrupt change and, yeah. and to get up to speed properly. Well, it, it for is for me anyway. It, it, me too. I mean, like in little lines. You know, I could do maybe a, a snippet of it, and I will use it in my melodic playing of one that I use a lot. Yeah. It might be a phrase like that just for two notes on the third string. So, yeah. so there'll be like a little two-note thing that I will use to get to get through a phrase or something, and it also adds a certain kind of a punch to it too. Yeah. I could pull it off. 
and sometimes I will use a pull-off instead of single string. But, um, yeah, the facility that it takes to really get single string up and running and smooth is, That's a is different remarkable. Yeah. When you see the, the dexterity of the guy like Ryan Cavanaugh has or any of the new crop of players that are really delving into that style. So I, sure. wouldn't, I wouldn't dissuade anybody from getting into that for sure. And just for my purposes, I didn't need to really go that far into that. I just – I still wanted to keep that kind of rolling, bluesy, rolling – Scruggs Crow approach overall for traditional things and then melodic approaches for more contemporary influences. Well, somehow all of that got you to your big award that you won a few years oh. ago. Was that 2013? 2013, yeah. You won the, the IBMA Banjo Player of the Year, which yeah. was fantastic. I guess I don't even know what to ask you about that other than what was that like? And, Huge honor yeah. and surprise. And I honestly, everybody says, oh, you didn't expect it. I really didn't. I had nothing prepared. I had no idea what I was going <laughs> to say when I walked up there. Not yeah. a clue. You know, J.D. Crow was up for this thing and everybody else, you know, Sammy Sheeler, Ron Stewart. I mean, these are guys are my heroes, you know. And uh, I just, I thought, well, it's going to be J.D. You know, he's retiring or whatever, any number of things like that. But when mm-hmm. they called my name, I was just... The most shocked, and I and I, I still swear that I I know there was a major recall demanded by almost every state in the country, but the you know by the time I hit the stage, but uh, no, but all seriously, I haven't haven't heard of any voter fraud happening or Russian meddling. That that might have been the beginning of it, right in there. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it was really an honor. I mean, huge honor, and uh, it was a a surprise, and it was really um, you know really touching, really. You know, an incredible thing. And I don't see it. It's not like, a no. it's just recognition. That was a really nice thing, mm-hmm. you know, because you do this for a long time. And But there are plenty of people that need to be recognized, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't feel like I need I, that I deserve that any more than the next guy. I'll tell you that. I don't feel that way. It, but, it, but, of course, it's a very nice honor. That was good Lord. There's tons of players all over the country in various parts of the country you've never heard of who are fantastic. You know, in our area, Baltimore, Washington area, there I was blessed to be in an area that had a lot of fantastic musicians living there. And there's some of them haven't really left the state. They're just glad to be playing locally or somewhat regionally. And you know, they're incredible. That was part of it for me. I thought you were well-deserving, but also in another sense, it was someone like yourself who had, as of that point, not been rec- recognized that officially. Yeah, You had a lot of guys who had won it multiple, multiple times, and they deserved it yeah, as, absolutely. as well. But um, it, it was really refreshing to see. And they're working for that. And, it, and, it, and not that they, they were working for the recognition, but I'll tell you this, I, never, I wasn't doing it for that. Yeah. I mean, quite honestly, playing bar gigs around Baltimore, did that for years. I learned how to play in mm-hmm. gigs like that. And some of them are a little rough, you know, but you just slog through it, but it's it's good training ground. And I'm not ashamed to say that I was, you know, proud to be, you know, a, a in the trenches, beating it out barroom musician. Feel like you paid your dues. and Yeah, can... and but I really took it seriously. In other words, yeah. I didn't want to fall into the barroom lifestyle and have that take over and then the music just goes out the door, even on the crummiest night and rough crowd and bad sound and any number of negative circumstances, I really cared about trying to do what I was doing right. Mm-hmm. It wasn't always right, I'll tell you that, but it's like I really wanted to play as well as I could and right to the last set, to the last note, and be working on some new technique or 
trying to get a better break on a tune. I was like always thinking of that. That's all that mattered to me. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really, I wasn't thinking at all of, yeah, someday I'll play on the Opry or someday I'll be doing this or I'll record or whatever. All I cared about was hearing JD do something and wanting to get that. Yeah. Or hearing, you know, John Glick do an amazing thing on the fiddle and I didn't know where those notes were and I want to get that someday. I want to be able to figure that out and be able to execute that. That meant everything to me. That's yeah. my my single goal was just to acquire a get a little closer to that prize. That was it. Yeah, when when the the source of your motivation is is internal like that, you yeah. will always be motivated to, yeah. to do it. Yeah, and I, I can think Even of... Even when uh, there's no one in the crowd or whatever. When no, one's, no one's in the crowd. I remember a, a good example of that. Uh, David Greer grew up in our area, Laurel, Maryland. I remember going to his house one time, uh, his, his dad's place in Laurel, and David was just sitting on a couch, and I think he was maybe watching a Redskins game or something. Just and We were just hanging out. We weren't playing. I mean, he just had his guitar and... We were just sitting on the couch, and the sound was turned down, and he's sitting there playing amazing music. And then when there was a commercial on, got the sound down, suddenly he's just playing just beautiful music, just yeah. sitting there. I thought, man, that is what I want to do. More than <laughs> anything in life, somehow get to the point, and I haven't gotten there, by the way, not there, where David is, because that's an extraordinary musician. But I thought, I'd rather do that more than anything in the world sit on a couch by myself, whether it's a thousand people listening or nobody at all, just a cat sitting in the corner, yeah. doesn't matter. If I could sit and play music like that, make music like that, that was just beautiful and pleasing to my ear and really satisfying something deep in my soul, <laughs> that was it. Yeah, that's your your bliss right there. That was it. That's all that matters. And that's why, like, all these other things are, you know, they're really nice and, and all that kind of thing. But it's like that was the ultimate thing. Unfortunately, <laughs> you don't get paid to sit on your couch. Oh, man. Or, or, to, or to sit now in you your tell apartment, me. right? Dang it. <laughs> you know, but it's like that would be the most amazing thing just to be able to sit in a corner. Yeah. You know, or in a room or outside over, looking over a sunset somewhere or whatever and just be playing playing something you want to hear and be able to execute it. And it doesn't have to be the fastest thing or flashiest thing, just music that really touches you. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you could just get a little taste of that and be able to generate that self, that yourself, so you don't have to go elsewhere and dig it out or search it or seek it out. You've already done all that groundwork of seeking it, finding it, tracking it down, trying to imitate it, play it, figure it out, all that kind of thing. And now it's in your grasp. Suddenly, it's in your control a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's like those fleeting moments. That's the deal. That 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 was like the only thing, and so that still gets me. I mean, I get an instrument out, get my banjo out, and I just want to play. I'll just play rolls and licks and just phrases, or I'll think of a really beautiful fiddle tune. I want to get you know dial in a little more, or just listen for tone and just play a really beautiful tone. Or just listen to a string. And just get lost in tone. I do that too. I love D minor, right? I mean... You know, just whatever. Yeah. It occurs to you, just... That's a great mindset, I think. Yeah. 
Anyway, that was my still my motivation. Yeah. Well, part of getting that beautiful sound is through your instruments, of course. Yeah. And you are pretty well known as you're one of the pre-war junkie guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So why don't you tell us about the banjo you have and, and what drew you to that sound? Yeah. Well, it's a Style 75, a late 30s, early 40s. Hard to say what year it is. It was probably a PB 75 because the it flathead. It's an original flathead pot. It was not a conversion. Um which would typically be archtop converted to flathead. Yeah. But now, of course, obviously, five-string neck. neck is converted. Right? Um, I got it as a five-string already, so it had already been converted from plectrum, plectrum to, yeah. to five-string. And I guess what drew me to that was, again, hearing Crow all, all those years. Excuse me. And, you know, I didn't know any of this early on, but later on reading about what banjos he's playing as more and more of that information came out about mahogany, nickel, and style threes. And, hell, back in the 70s, I'd never even heard of a 75. Mm -hmm. I'd started to hear about an RB3, and a lot of people thought Reno threes were 75s. There was a lot of misinformation. This was still, you know, kind of, you know, trying to put all the pieces together. We didn't have the resources we have now. Let alone trying to figure out those serial numbers. Serial numbers that turned out to be (laughs) not serial numbers. They're factory order numbers. That's a whole other thing. And you can do all that research with Joe Spann's book Mm -hmm. about Gibson banjos and and Jim Mill's book. You know, if anybody wants to delve into that, those are two great resources on that. But that sound, I'll tell you, there is something that really hits you about that sound. And... You could say that it's a lot of hype, and I can understand where someone would say, well, you know, a banjo is a banjo, or you just don't really hear it. And I'm not sure if I really heard it early on, too, but the first time I got a taste of one, I was playing another banjo, and it was a good new banjo in the 70s. And I went to this buddy's uh, house, Frank Sheff, and he had a couple of old flatheads, and he had introduced me to, you know, Crow's music, you know, the live tapes. Mm -hmm. He said, here, try this. And I'd been playing a few years and was in my first band, and I could play a little bit. And as soon as I hit it and played like a roll on a third string, you know, I just did something like that. Mm -hmm. And I could feel it. I could feel the resonator like vibrating my stomach, and I could feel it in my leg and feel the neck practically bouncing out of my hand when I did that. And all I did was something like, I can't remember exactly, this is 40 years ago in 78, something like that. And I remember Frank leans in. As soon as I did a lick like that, he said, you hear that thing talking to you? <laughs> it came to life. <laughs> I mean, I was and hooked, you did. man. You did I, hear I, it. It was, yeah. like, you know, it was like a big hook in my mouth. I mean, I was being like plucked out of the water. It was like, yeah, I do. And I don't know what that is, but I got to have it. Yeah, there's no you know, It's back. like a taste of red meat. I mean, it's just like once you've somehow that sound gets in your ear. And it's so subtle because, yeah. you know, there are a lot of great new banjos being made over the years and probably more now than ever. And I'm not downing any of them. I think it's great. This is an incredible age for anybody getting into the banjo now because the access to great instruments yeah. is better now than ever. But in the 70s, it was somewhat limited. Gibson mm. wasn't making their best stuff then, and there were one or two things. And then some good ones were really coming along. Stelling was coming along. That was a great new instrument in the 70s. So things were really changing. And this isn't denigrating any of them because they all have a great sound. But if for whatever reason you found that you got yourself hooked on on a certain tone early on, it just it strikes you a certain way. And it really was not just hero worship. I mean, there was a little of that. You want your hero's banjo and all that kind of thing. But it goes beyond that. 
because if it was only a matter of that, but then you got it and you go, well, you know, man, it looks like JD's banjo, but it really doesn't sound that way. Uh, the novelty would wear off. Novelty would wear out fast, and you know the price tag would wear off even faster. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there is something there, and then you have to realize too, it is your it's technique also. And I'm not saying I'm drawing his tone because nobody gets a sound out of a banjo like that guy. But all the banjo players get their unique tone with their touch. Yep. And I do feel like it's a 50-50. I do feel like it's obviously your right-hand technique and what you draw out of it. But you have to have an instrument that meets you halfway. Yeah. It's not all you, and it's not all instrument. It's always easy to say, yeah, Earl could pick up anything in a harmony banjo and sound great. Yeah, but... He would sound he, greater. He didn't pick... <laughs> He didn't choose to play a harmony banjo the rest mm-hmm. of his career. He, you know, it was like there was a reason why his ear told him that Granada was really something, or that JD was, you know, listening for things. Or Bela, he had a seventy-five. That's another guy who, yeah. you know, really brought the seventy-five into awareness when he got his seventy-five. Probably about that same time in the late seventies. So after all your experience with these classic instruments yeah the eighty thousand dollar question i guess is what do you think it is about them that captures that tone if you're um you know everyone asks is it the is it the tone ring is it the rim is it it the age of the resonator it's a combination to that and there's so much you know the questions i still have you know what we what i would love to know is what did it sound like new yes if you could have gone back to 1940 and put a plastic head on and a Snuffy Smith Bridge or something like that, and a set of GHS strings. Would it have sounded pretty much like that right off the bench in 1940? My guess is I'll bet it was pretty close. Mm -hmm. Because when you hear, obviously, early recordings of Scruggs in the late 40s and early 50s, he's playing the Granada, and that banjo was only 15 years old then, almost 20 years old. So it wasn't even that old. Yeah, And by the time you're hearing... You know, Reno's 75, that banjo was probably 10 or 12 years old. Sounded really good then, right? Yeah. You know, so it's like, could, it, the sound could it have aged yeah. in 10 years and gotten to that point? I don't know. So there's a lot of debate about that. Tone ring, rim, there is still something that's that mystique about it. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that they're all great. There, there are probably some that are better than others and all that, but it's there is something there. Amazing thing too is style ones that don't have a tone ring, but just a brass hoop and just a rim. They kind of have that tone also. There's it doesn't have the velocity, it doesn't have the carrying power for sure, but it's like got that little the resonance something the resonance. But there's something in the tone quality and banjo players would make a deal about that fourth string and about the big yeah. fourth string. And of course, we all love that. I for some reason I, I I'm more sensitive to the third. Interesting. And the tone of a third string. I don't know what to tell you about this third string. (laughs) But like an idiot, I could sit there and do that for about an hour and be very happy with that. There's something in there that is really hard to find elsewhere. And it just, it could just be psyche. I don't know. But once you do hear that, it'll drive you nuts. It, it does drive. It, it becomes an obsession, and but you have to be really careful with that. You don't want to go by somebody say so. If you don't hear it, don't feel bad because you don't hear it. There are plenty of things that people, other people hear that I don't hear. Mm-hmm. I just don't hear them. Yeah, you know, if you get together with somebody like Bela with an exceptional ear, he'll hear something and you know say, "Hey, do you hear this?" And he'll do something with a tailpiece or whatever. And I'm, 
frankly, no, I don't. Yeah. But I'm not doubting that he does. And really good recording know, engineers are the same way. Yeah. Oh, your string's out of tune. No, it isn't. Yeah. We're talking. Yeah, I I don't have a you know a, that kind of ear by any means. But I but the ear that I do have, I know what I like. Put it yeah. that way. And so, I did get hooked on that sound. And then there were certain tones. For example, on that 44 album, the the rounder 44, on the the very end of 10 degrees and getting colder, it's in F, and the, the song goes to a G, and then at the end JD goes, it's 10 degrees, back to the last chorus, but he plays that C like right there. Something about the tone of that lick that really stands out. I've used that as like, that's the litmus test, right? That's the, that's the thing. It's ten degrees and getting colder down by Boulder Dam today. But you could just sample that and sample that. Put that in a banjo. Note. Oh my gosh! And so that like that particular lick. I mean, not to. Thousands of others of his aren't great, but that one stands out because it just really is prominent yeah. in the mix. And the tone is just so right, so beautiful. And that's like I was chasing that yeah. for years, like trying to get my band just set up that way and trying different things, head tensions. And I mean, you can go on forever, forever all about that. But to finally get an instrument that approached that. So what is your... Um... Because you are well known for your your setup skills too. What is your approach for getting that in terms of of head tension? Do you have any yeah, secret overall, tricks that uh, I wouldn't say I have any secrets. I mean, these are things that a lot of people have arrived. I mean, uh, arrived at these things. I read articles years ago. Tom McKinney, who was a great setup guy yeah. back in the '60s and '70s, the and capo he did, guy, he, the capo guy, but great banjo player, and he uh, did a lot of work for um, Sonny Osborne. I guess he was friends of his, and maybe set up work for JD and Earl too. Mm -hmm. I'm not clear on that, but there was an article in uh, Bluegrass Unlimited about him. And he talked about a few things and he started talking about head tension. He didn't go into a lot of specifics, but he had some specs on Mm -hmm. that about head tension or, or a combination of things. And the first time I got to play JD's banjo about maybe 20 years ago, and I started becoming aware of head tension. Up until then, I really wasn't tapping heads. And I was, nobody was really talking about that. 40 years ago, is like, you know, just tighten it up until it almost <laughs> yeah. breaks and back yeah. it off. Yeah. You know, there, was, there wasn't a lot of specific information. That whole G-sharp thing didn't really start coming in until, like, the 90s, as I recall. Wow. Okay. Starting to hear people starting to talk about that. And Snuffy Smith was sort of passing that information on. Hmm. He was doing a lot of work for... Crow and working on Rice's guitar, and he was a you know major setup guy, and of course his bridges and all that. So that a little more of that discussion was going on, and then noticing where people are setting their tailpieces, and then people are starting to get into bridges and gram weights. And I'm not up on that; I don't make bridges, but I've settled on you know like Snuffy Smith style bridges yeah. and things like that. A lot of great bridges out there. I, I wouldn't. What is that one that you have? Well, this one is one that actually Bayla gave me years ago. It's made by a guy named Brian Hooper, who I understand is not making bridges now. Oh, shucks. But uh, I'd like to find something like that. On this one, it sounds particularly good. Is it, it just a, my eyes, or is it like a moon it, shit? It's like kind a, of like the moon bridge, but it's not a direct copy of a moon bridge. It's much more subtle. It's just it's, a... Yeah. It's a slight little arch there almost like a like a warped bridge but it's for intonation okay but i've had a snuffy on there it sounded great yep 
And there's so many of them out there. So again, I, I, I always hate to come across like, well, it's got to be this or that one's not good. It's the thing that can be really maddening about banjo setup and for banjo owners is unusual combinations could really work. Yes. And sometimes all the, the so-called quote unquote right combinations doesn't work on yours. Yours just But if you take that bridge band. and put it on something else, it's killer. Yeah. Or a neck on one instrument is okay. On another one, it vibrates great. You know, that kind of stuff can really drive you, yeah, you know, it's, to, it's a big machine. to distraction. It is. So, but as far as general setup approach, if I'm looking for a balance, and which I'm looking for, uh, a, a Scruggs Crow sound, I would say I'd lean more toward, mm-hmm. uh, where I want nice low. I want some thickness on the low end. And if I do something, you know, kind of a quiet and mellow of... You know, if I want something like that, I can get nice voicings on low end and nice big fat fourth and voicings there. But it can still cut if I want. You know, so I still want that too. So if I'm looking for that kind of sound, it does tend to be that G sharp okay. kind of thing. Or what I call a, a window of opportunity. Sorry about that. <laughs> but somewhere between G and A is where that can show up. Yeah. Because for some badges, you might have to take it down below G-sharp. Some maybe between G-sharp and A. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on your ear and your taste, and some instruments may need more or less, and it doesn't have to be on a, a given note. But that's the general range. A lot of today's players, like uh, Bela and Noam, who are looking for a very different sound, a much mellower sound, they tend to be more like F or F-sharp. Right. And if you're looking for that, that's... You know, it's a little bit rounder sound, and it blends in beautifully for certain things. I find that for my purposes, since I'm not really playing that style anyway, that's probably not going to help me too much for me. Yeah. Because I still need to be able to play bluegrass, and if I'm playing Train 45 or something like that, I still need this. Need a pop. Yeah. I really need that sound right in there. So I find that I, this instrument will lose that if I get down much below G. Sure. So say again, personal preference and what you're looking for. Yeah. So head G sharp, tailpiece gap, roughly half the height of the bridge to start with. A little lower if you just need a little more snap, a little higher if you want it a little more open, but be careful with those adjustments. Uh, string gauge, I use um, GHS PF 155s. That's the custom light set. Okay. That's a 10, 11, 12 and a half, 20. They also have a PF-190. It's a cryogenic set, very good for tuning, 10, 11, 13, 20. Not too much tension on the coordinator rods. These are kind of known things. These are not just yeah, my things. It, These are things I've picked up from reading and talking with other setup guys about it. Yeah, fairly neutral, you know, not a lot of stress. You know, the the top rod, when I say top rod, I'm thinking of the one closer to the closer head. Closer to the head, right. <laughs> uh, you know, should not be really really tight into the shell too much, you know, just maybe a little bit beyond finger tight. Little okay. things like that do make a difference. How, on old banjos, you really want to have somebody check it out who knows them. If you feel like you have an old instrument that's really not delivering, and I had one for mm-hmm. years that I felt like something wasn't right, check the tone ring fit. Wow. Okay. I had a, 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 a an instrument that for years really didn't have much of a fourth string. Good tone. It was a pre-war flathead, a style four. Good sounding banjo. The conventional wisdom forty years ago is everything tight as possible. Hit, you know, tone ring tight to the rim. This is what sort of the thought. 
But guys like Huber and others 20-some years ago started realizing that a little more loose fit was actually better. And when I told him I was kind of having trouble with this banjo, he said, you know, just he had worked on one very similar to that, took the ring off and trimmed the shell, you know, just kind of scraped around the shell to loosen up that fit of the ring so it slipped slip on, fit, yeah. slip fit. I did that, put it together, bang, suddenly had wow. a fourth string. Amazing. I mean, like immediately. Yeah, that's amazing. So things that's, like that are like major yeah. little things. But that's getting deeper into setup issues on old instruments and fit and all that kind of thing. I mean, you could go on and on about that. But, I mean, I've run my action about eighth of an inch off the top of the 12th fret with about maybe a 14,000th relief, forward re- relief, I, you know, very careful about the nut action. One thing I'm really, really super particular about is slotting of the bridge and the nut. You know, they need to be angled. This mm-hmm. is not anything new. People sure. know about this, but a lot it's of people aren't really yeah. sure about it, that the, the angle of that slot should be almost the angle that it's going back toward the tailpiece or from the nut to the peg head. You don't want it going beyond that angle or else you're not getting full contact with the nut. Yeah. And if you're going way less or flat through the uh, the nut or bridge, that's where the string can Buzzing get a muffled sound. That's where you, a lot of times you'll get this sound. Like, here's a good first string. But if you get this, that kind of thing. Or that sitar Well, effect. sitar <laughs> thing can happen too. Yeah. But if you're getting that, but fretted, it's clean, but... Like that, then you know it's a nut. If it's still doing it fretted, then it's the bridge. Could be both. Sure. So first get one, you know, if it's still sounding like this, fretted, all right, then check the slot, the bridge. And if that starts sounding good at the bridge, and then the nut is still open, now you have to do it at the nut. So you have to check those things. Very important because that, you could be playing a really tremendous instrument, but you could have like basically low air pressure in one tire. (laughs) And and suddenly the whole thing is you know not running right. So the last couple things, do you have I'm a microphone geek as you can tell mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm a sound guy. So do you have microphone preferences that you use in the studio or live? Well, I've used those I guess U87. Yeah. Sometimes we've used that and uh, what do they call the 404s something 414 414s. Yeah. I think we used those last time with recording with Frank Sullivan at Compass Studios. We tried different things. Frank has a great ear for that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we tried a couple of pairs of different things, all of them high-quality mics, but I think we end up using a pair for that. Stereo micing the banjo? Stereo mic. Okay. I really love that. Yeah. There just is a broader range, it seems, to come out with that. A little more 3D. Yeah. Uh, live, I mean, I just have my own little Pro 37R that I'll use on gigs. We, we're, we're plugged in now. Now I've got a mini flex in here, uh, the Donnell Enterprise. GHS product? Well, that... not this one. No, this is a guy in California. It's called Mini Flex. Oh. Uh, Donnell, Ken Donnell. And he's. this is an older model Mini Flex, and it's a, basically a, a miniature. Uh, uh, condenser mic on a gooseneck. Yeah, and that works really well for you? Yeah, it does. It gives a very natural tone. Like any You don't t- find that you lose too much putting it internal as opposed to... No, not at oh, all. No, I, haven't, I know they, he does make one that has external and internal. I, uh, but I, I like this one. This, this is an older model that really seems to have pretty good kick to it, a good, cool. good range. You have to be careful with feedback anytime you're using something like that, but we're not using stage monitors. We're we're using ear ear monitors, so that's not an issue. That but fixes a lot. Of sometimes problems. in a loud, very loud stage, I can run into problems, and I have to mute the banjo a little bit to get around that. Mm-hmm. 
So last thing, tell people where they can find where you're playing or yeah, check or you our out. Yeah, band, Frank Sullivan and Dirty Kitchen. That's S-O-L-I-V-A-N, Frank Sullivan and Dirty Kitchen. Uh, DirtyKitchenBand.com. Check our site, our schedule. All of our information is on there. Uh, you can contact me if you're in those. I'm near Baltimore, about a half hour north of Baltimore in southern Pennsylvania. For anybody who's looking for setup work, mm-hmm. who happens to be in that area, or if you're coming through, I do it by appointment at home and can work around other people's schedules. I don't mind weekends, nights, anytime is mm-hmm. good. Uh, my just I don't have a website, but just my email mm my initials five st five string mm five. ST at AOL.com. <laughs> I'm one of those, probably the last two people that has that. Pre-war banjos and pre-war email addresses. Yeah, pre-war. That's how it goes. Hope no more wars, but if that happens. Yeah, not going to uh, Yeah. Well, hey, thanks for everything. I could listen to you talk about this stuff all day, so maybe catch up again sometime. Love but I really to. appreciate you giving us your time and everything. Glad to do it. Thank okay. you for asking. Yeah, you bet. All right, take care. So that's a wrap on this episode of the Picky Fingers podcast featuring Mike Munford, the 2013 IBMA Banjo Player of the Year and the current banjo player for Frank Sullivan and Dirty Kitchen. Thanks a lot for joining me once again. Thanks a lot to Jake Lowe and Mike Muller for supporting this podcast. You can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to make a donation to the show. Keep everything running smooth. Uh, You can email me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Love hearing from you that way. If you don't follow me yet on all the social medias, the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Instagrams, you know, track me down. But until next time, everyone take care, and I will see you then. <laughs>